This episode of the Savage Snowflake podcast is brought to you by Boundless Technology. Boundless Technology strives to advance in the cannabis industry by creating innovative products with portability and stealth in mind. Aiming to deliver an affordable, efficient and straightforward experience for the consumer, Boundless offers an alternative to the traditional joint or water pipe. Enjoy the taste, smells and effects of cannabis at lower vaporization temperatures with Boundless Technology products. Use coupon code SAVAGE for 10% off all Boundless Technology products at bndlstech.com. Follow Boundless on all social media at bndlstech. And if you want to show your support for the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash Savage Snowflake to donate as little as $1 a month. All right, Savage, let's get to it. Savage. What's going on, Savages? Welcome to another episode of the Savage Snowflake podcast with me, Jeff Lee. Danny Deech, I'm back again. Looking, uh, I don't know, I look like a like a sweaty monk today. I feel like my five head is getting bigger and bigger and bigger every single fucking episode. Fortunately, this a man well for you. who's got more powerful hair than I think I'm ever going to have. Um, actor, writer, director, producer, owns production companies, voices pretty much uh, every single... Co-owns. <laughs> pretty much voices, I think, every character on TV in every animation and video game known to man right that's, now. That's hyperbole We're going to get sure. into that. It's Mr. Seth Green. Thanks so much for being here, man. Thanks, Jeff. Good to see um, you, man. It's good to see you, too. Are we seen the each last other? time we, see, we saw each other was, was at wrestling. I'm At sure that makes WWE. A lot of sense. Yeah. You're a huge WWE fan. You even guest hosted, didn't you? I did. I was the first celebrity guest host of Monday Night Raw. Okay. It's one of the greatest nights you of my life. You weren't tempted to like, don a little spandex, jump up on the ropes and maybe... I was in uh, some pretty normal looking sweats but i for sure jumped up on the rope and did like this stuff i got i anticked pretty hard to try and get put over you know i used to host this um this uh thing called lucha britannia back in london and it was it was a mexican wrestling yeah. meets wwe style it was like american wrestling meets mexican wrestling style fusion show and it's very big still like out there they have classes they teach you know new people how to wrestle um and there's nothing like that adrenaline it's fucking insane yeah being up on stage, I can't imagine what it would be like to have tens of thousands of fans. The day you. the day that we did our match, there were thirty thousand people in the stadium, which was crazy. And they told me it was three million uh, in the televised audience. Um, but I was also in a spot with all of their top talent, and so I was well handled. Okay, um, and who was I was also that day. Who were the? Who were so the... I was in a six-man tag team. Okay. in two thousand nine with John Cena and Triple H against uh, the belt holder at the time, Randy Orton, and the Legacy, which was uh, hell, uh, Cody Rhodes and uh, the young. I think it was the young DiBiase. Yeah, um, but it was insane. It was insane. And you've been a fan since you were a kid, I'm guessing. I'm super into it. Um, I love it as a entertainment platform. I also really appreciate it as uh, what it represents in zeitgeist. Um, and also because I'm, I can't help but study the mechanics of stuff. I've been attentive to how they've evolved this business over the last thirty years and what it's what it's become and how much it took to get it there. Um, and then as somebody that's done a bunch of stage stuff, I really appreciated how well produced, uh, how organized and how unbelievably professional the whole operation is. Did you ever see that um, Louis Theroux? Have you ever seen Louis Theroux? You know who he mm-hmm. is? He's a documentary filmmaker from the UK. And he uh, he did one back in the, I think, early, well, sorry, mid to late 90s, actually, about 
WWE or that, at that time it was uh, yeah. I guess WWF still right or yeah um, and until yeah. they got into Dutch with the World Wildlife Foundation exactly because yeah. <laughs> fucking pandas can throw down it had to do this I learned you know uh, part of doing Robot Chicken is really understanding both copyright and trademark and right. fair use parity and the way that certain brands are represented globally and so what that came down to was WWF as a wrestling organization was strictly uh, domestic. Okay. Um, and they didn't have any categories reserved for international use. Right. Okay. Whereas the WWF, the Worldwide, the World Wildlife Foundation, mm-hmm. had uh, uh, trademarked that logo in every other <laughs> country around the world. Yeah. So when uh, the wrestling org wanted to secure it globally, they they couldn't prove that the brand re- that that mark represented them outside of the U.S. Right. Okay. And so they 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 turned it into World Wrestling Entertainment. I mean, they're not. Like, bad, like they're not easily confused. I don't think the two things. No, but <laughs> but as an acronym, and especially at a time when those kinds of uh, abbreviations were becoming so popular, sure. as the rise of the internet, you know, brand confusion. Well, he did this documentary, and at that time, they were still uh, refusing to acknowledge that there was any kind of scripted element to what it was. They weren't entertainers; then. Pre- they were still predetermined. Athletes. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's scripted, oh, especially no, they, especially uh, sure, having sure. been on the inside of it and seeing the way the spots get put up. We didn't sure. like rehearse; we were just sort of organized, and then a lot of shit happened. That I was like, "Oh my god, what do I do here?" Was there any point where you were scared? Was there a moment where you were like, "Oh fuck, this is"? Yeah, there was definitely sure. a moment where uh, Randy Orton, uh, where his you know size thirteen flat soled boot makes contact with my solar plexus and entirely knocked the wind out of me in front of thirty thousand people. I was like, "Oh my god." I'm going to die. I'm going to die in front of all these people. It was the, uh, what's more scary, working on that or working on a huge franchise like Buffy or Robot Chicken or, you know, Austin um, Powers? It's different stuff. I mean, I've been, I've been injured on sets and I've had to do some crazy stuff. I was almost decapitated on the set of Rat Race trying to do like a, a hanging from a 100-foot crane stunt. Um, but my stuntman was... You're like Tom Cruise, mate. Hardly. Tom Cruise has become like Jackie Chan he's in, fucking, in the he's, later days. He's fighting against something in himself, I reckon. I, you know, who knows? I've never, <laughs> I've never been that guy. Like, he's he's got a completely you different burden. Tom Cruise in Hollywood. You well, be the truth is, I love Tom Cruise as an actor, and yeah. when Tom Cruise is killing it, he's there's but nobody as a lover, better. He's... Yeah, he's not as uh, sensitive or as generous as I would expect. That's ironically the only place he doesn't do his own stunts. <laughs> People are going to pull that quote yes. and think that that's legit. Um, but, you know, um, um, you know it's, it's all my, my goal as a performer when I'm a part of a production is to give everything I've got, make sure that everything is safe, yeah. um, and not be afraid if I've been given assurances. And in, in every instance... Um, even when things go terribly wrong, if you've if you've got the right crew around you, everybody saves the day. Yeah. So I've never been like horribly injured. But you, you even hear about like Harrison Ford breaking his leg on Star Wars or Jeremy Renner breaking both his arms on tag. Harrison Ford would just brush that off, wouldn't he? Uh, they, they shut down for a minute. He's the they forward, do all of yeah. his like sitting in the cockpit Strapped stuff. With a couple of cocktail sticks. And he does seem like a baller yeah. who wouldn't give a fuck about really? that leg. Um, I don't know how you guys did it. <laughs> When we, when we, before we started, we were talking, um, and I was so, I mean, I knew that you had a, uh, a plethora of, uh, of work behind you, just a ridiculous kind of amount of, of work in so many different places, you know, on screen, uh, on TVs, on, uh, in, in animation, but you've been working since you were seven years old. Yeah. And I worked out 
looking at the dates, 1984 was when you started professionally in the industry. 84. 84, yeah. It may have even been earlier than that. Man. And Two? that's the year I was born. So you've literally, from the moment I burst forth from my mother's wonderful vagina, you were already at work and you've never stopped working you've literally that's that's i mean i've had periods of time where things were not as active or especially um uh when i was younger when there were wider gaps in between but sure but it 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 it, it emphasizes the point that it really is your responsibility to maintain your own momentum but also, and it, it's several different points like, in my fuck i just missed out on just i don't know fingering girls and, and like and, and stuff like that i never felt like i missed out on uh, uh romantic activities i was highly attentive to those kind of pursuits okay. uh, as anyone would be and you know all those well, you've comments- married a, an absolute fox as well you've oh thanks man yeah mean, she's awesome um and she's a nerd too you've, she's like, pretty you've nerdy the ultimate we have a lot of similar interests which i think is the key to it like we like to do stuff yeah together so that makes it easy but i had people when i was um a kid ask me if I felt like I was missing out on my childhood. And the truth is, when I was in school, I was not happy, you know, and I was not popular and it was difficult for me to socialize. And I had goals and aspirations that my entire school seemed not to be able to relate to. And so I didn't feel like I was missing out on the conventional things that everybody in my school was doing because right. that wasn't, A, it wasn't available to me and and B, it wasn't what I wanted. So I really... I was very lucky because I pursued my, because I knew my goals so early. Um, I was able to learn constantly and continue to work in a really driven and intentional way towards yeah. the goal of being able to work my whole life. What about um, that love of performance and that love of creating from such a young age? Was that because yeah. of, I mean, your mum and dad, Herb and Barb? I, have to, I, have to, I, can't, I can't not I can't say Herbert and Barbara it has to be Herbert and Barb yeah. yeah I actually did I did some research on this one man I feel like you were, you were certainly owed that after you know almost 40 35 years of hard work um, <laughs> um, neither of my parents my, both of my parents were teachers my, my dad's a mathematician and my mom's an artist oh, yeah. and so I got the benefit of both of their instruction at a young age and all of their opinions about people and Tolerance. So you just had a natural quality for performing. That was yeah. Amazing. I was. I knew. I it was something I was doing before I knew it was a thing. And the second I realized that it was a job, I was like, "Well, that's my job." Obviously, yeah. I remember the first thing I had was a, a magic kit. I got uh, when I was about, I think, four or five. Do you remember years the brand old. of it or who the magician no, was? No, it was. It was the one that came with. It was real basic. It came with like a. I, actually, I do remember what it was. Paul Daniels. Oh, do you know Paul Daniels? Yeah, that's pretty exciting. Uh, and it was a Paul Daniels magic kit, and I got it when I was fucking five or six or something. And I remember there's a video my mum has of me in a little bow tie, yeah. and a little jacket, and I'm doing a performance, and I'm and I, I'm being funny, like, and that wasn't in the. There was no handbook for the humor, right? Your stage presence is yours to but define. But the magic yeah. was the thing. I was just, I loved yeah. the idea of performing. Did you have something like that when you were a kid that made you go, oh, this is um, a defining I, moment? That- sort of. I grew up watching cartoons and um, I, I was exposed to sophisticated comedy at a young age, like Saturday Night Live or Johnny Carson or Monty Python or Benny Hill. Like I was very privy to um, stuff and I was yeah. voracious about it like I just my parents were really cool about taking me to museums and being really informative my mom was uh, incredibly well versed in all of the 
modern and 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 like ancient masters of the Renaissance. Is and the, so is she the, is the Russian side of the family. Is that your mum's side, or because you're Russian um, Polish? Yeah, you've got a few different. I think well, we did the genealogy, and it's like pure Russian Polish. Okay. Any any of the other influence I thought I had didn't show up in our DNA. So I was like, ah, yeah, what are you gonna do? Um, but no, no, that's both my both my folks come from ancient distant lands <laughs> yeah i feel like there's something to be said if you've got parents that have that european i mean i understand everyone in america unless they're a native american yeah are you know gonna have european blood somewhere there yeah but i think there's my mum is romanian she speaks like fucking seven languages at oh. school they learn so much they have an, a love for opera and theater and like you know there's she's a teacher too mm. so it's definitely that love of performance that love of literature that love of um uh, arts, it, uh, all the arts, you know, like, yeah. uh, you know, an all-encompassing art love. Is that what your parents instilled inside of you when you were a... No, they, I mean, they didn't want me to pursue this. They did not believe it was a viable career. And, you know, yeah. who could really fault them? Uh, we were living in a row house in Philadelphia yeah, in yeah, a yeah, very yeah. modest neighborhood, and there was not um, access to those kinds of goals. So I really had to fight every step of the way. How do they feel about it now? Um, well, they've expressed some basic pride, yeah. um, but there <laughs> basic was a sick pride. Yeah. But there was a period of time of just disbelief, it, you, yeah. you know, because I started working so young and because I was successful at a young age, but never quite famous. I was never catastrophically famous the way, you know, Gary Coleman or, or even Macaulay Culkin was. So sure. I was allowed this kind Which of is probably for the best. I well, feel like ultimately, you know. I mean, if you look at a guy like Mac, Mac is the most well-adjusted human being I've ever met. And that's, that's as a result of him taking charge of his life at different points in his right, life. Okay. Not, not as a result of him being so famous that he can't go anywhere without everyone in the world knowing him. And so I wasn't, I didn't have that kind of thing. And so by the time I was in my teens, in fact, by the time I was in my twenties and really became famous for my name like the 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 year that everybody knew my name at the same time I was already 21 or 22 and I'd had what, years what, of experience just to put it into perspective of career yeah. timeline well was this? in 1998 several incidents converged yeah. uh, Austin Powers came out on DVD and blew up I shot or I guess it came out can't hardly wait came out right um i was made a season a series regular on buffy the vampire Slayer. Sure. so all those things sort of converged and everybody instead of being like where do i know you from was like oh you're seth green yeah and so because it happened then and not when i was a kid i had already experienced the basic professional heartbreak of being unhirable at different points in my career and i'd also gotten to see teenagers become adults i'd gotten to see adults uh um you know, like flounder in their careers. Yeah. I'd gotten to see people spend their money too quickly and be left with nothing. So I, I feel like it's such a scary amount of information to have at a young age. Like well, to, to see that, you know, I'm just 34, looked at it as, I'm still trying to work out who the fuck I am. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, that was the thing. I felt very lucky because so many of my friends were still trying to figure out what they wanted to do with their life. And I was already, you know, 15 years into a career. So it, it, it was, I don't know. I've just been really lucky. I've been really lucky along the way that things have happened as they have that have allowed me to maintain this career for you this long. You think it's luck? Because the way that well, you I think talk- it's a combination. I've always heard that luck is where preparedness meets opportunity. And so I have done my best to always be prepared. Look, we just had a conversation whilst we we're making our lovely cup of tea. Yeah, this is lovely. About, Thank thanks, you. man. Thanks. Yeah. Well, just for the throat, for the old vocal cords. <laughs> keep know. that nice and... My nice doctors and are all furious with me. I'm, yeah, there you go. See, I'm, I'm keeping the doctors They're like, happy. listen, your leg is broken. You should stop climbing stairs. I'm like, well, how am I going to get upstairs? Man, I'll do it one leg. I'm going <laughs> to hop up there. Um, but I think there's... Um, 
I, I don't I don't I, I'm reaching a point now where I think uh, certainly luck is part of it representation is part of it yeah, representation. Uh, things you know uh, converging at the right times of course mm-hmm. the right PR all of these things yeah. however if you don't have that core drive if you don't have that core talent if you don't have uh, an inexcusable and fucking prevalent desire to create at every yeah. single moment you're away yeah. I don't think you have the kind of career that you have no I but you know I I, I, I say all the time I'm I'm just as susceptible to crippling depression and desperate insecurity as any other person. And it, and it really is how, by being able to work through those very basic human emotions, um, not taking stuff personally, continuing to swing, even when you feel like, what the fuck am I doing here? Like, that's, that's what keeps you going. That's what keeps it, that's what, that's what keeps you in the game. Did you, did you find a point where you realize what, causes those moments those 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 really down moments you know um because depression can be instigated by a a very simple set of uh of 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 behavioral patterns i think yeah um you know i'm definitely attentive to what precedes me feeling those ways but i'm also attentive to how much that's internal how much that is you versus you right and not necessarily real it's not necessarily it's just the story that you're telling yourself and if you tell yourself a different story that'll be the story you believe i'm not trying to dig too much into your negative you know negative moments i don't want it to focus on it's a comedy podcast you know tell me about the last (laughs) time you cried what's what's funnier than someone hysterically crying i mean let's be honest it is actually that but isn't there something beautiful in that you know when you have one of those big deep cries yeah where uh, 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 and the shoulders go and then it gets to a point where you cry so hard that you laugh at the end of the cry that's yeah. my favorite that's my favorite cry when um I was, when i was making without a paddle <laughs> i told the director that there's a scene where a bear like picks me up and takes me into its cave and i'm meant to be terrified for my life and i said to the director steve brill i want to be like hysterically frozen crying like real tears because i think it's going to be very funny and before we shot the scene, Anchorman came out and the, Will Ferrell has this scene where uh, Jack Black kicks his dog off of a bridge and then it smash cuts to him on the phone, in the, ugly in the crying. Roof, yeah. And I'm watching this happen. I'm like, God damn you, Will Ferrell. I was going to coin this moment and here it's brilliantly executed He's in a way. He's famous for that, always stealing people's ideas just before they do it. Well, I could hardly accuse him of stealing it I, because I'm we'd, accusing we'd him never spoken it. it and it really <laughs> is just an example of how often people are thinking no, the same no thing. No, he's notorious for that. He, he cruises other sets and like Stop finds that. that. No, it's true. true That's story. not true at all. No, he's, 100%. He is the nicest, most generous I'm man. That. I'm starting that rumor. No one's going to believe that. Will, <laughs> Will, Will Ferrell is a, is a global treasure. Will Ferrell's definitely <laughs> on my list of people that I love at my... Uh, you know, you have that ultimate dinner party yeah. collection. Will Ferrell's on there. I love that guy. Um, do you have, do you have a, an ultimate dinner party guest list? I guess I don't. Um, You've met them all? No, not not even in that capacity. I've met, I've met quite a few people and I, I definitely appreciate all those opportunities, but I haven't, I, I've never made that list of like, oh, I would really, really want this night. All right. How about someone who um, unbelievably uh, undercut the preconceived notions you might have had of them? before meeting them and then you met them and you were like oh fucking hell you're amazing um uh i don't know i mean there's always people that sort of surprise and impress you chris pine was one of those guys who i always thought was a great actor and then he came and do robot chicken and he was very very funny and i was like oh man 
it's almost unfair that a guy this pretty yeah. and talented is also hilariously funny and good at improv. Yeah. But, you know, with those kinds of guys, I always realize I'm not in competition with them in any way, shape, or form. And we're always best when we team up. So I was like, ooh, good to remember. I'll find any opportunity to team up with that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think um, I think there's... I don't know. I, I I don't know if it's um if it's this is true of all people in in the Hollywood industry. Zac Efron's the same way. Oh really? Kid, kid who's like shockingly talented and incredibly nice and fucking that body, mate. I swear he, to God, he's, like, yeah, he's put a lot of work into that. Yeah. Um, I've always thought that kid was great. I got to meet him. I'd go on I'd the go set of uh, Zac Efron. I think. Would you? I yeah. I, I wouldn't want to like I wouldn't want to have sex with him. Sure. But I jerk off in the same room as him. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'd be comfortable just... You want me to pa- pass that intel on? Or <laughs> try, yeah, trying to make that contact? Send him a photo. Uh, <laughs> just like, you know, tell him, like, just, just, why not? Just try it once. I met that kid, I think, before he turned 18, or maybe just after he was on the set of 17 again. No, but I didn't like him when he was young. Oh, really? I'm not talking Have young you seen Zachary, 17 I'm again? Na- you should see that movie. He's, like, that movie has no business being as good as it is, and he's, his performance in it is really incredible. You see that a lot, right? Like, the movie The Hot Chick, where uh, Rob Schneider is not trying at all to be um, uh, Rachel McAdams. Right. Like he's just doing a Rob Schneider like female girl, whereas Rachel McAdams is really doing a kind of spot on impression of the character that Rob Schneider was playing as a man. Yeah. Right. So typically actors don't do that work. But Zac Efron, who was playing a young Matt Perry. Yeah adopted all of these details of Matt yeah. Perry's performance. I was like, this kid's fucking impressive. And then he came in to do Robot and he was hilarious. And then I heard him sing and I was like, oh, you're, you're just like brilliantly fucking talented, aren't you? I like that about, um, I went to see that new Fantastic Beasts um, thing. BAFTA do us, they do a oh, screening yeah. like the week How before. Is it? Wonderful. My buddy um, Dan Fogler's in that and he always crushes. Oh, really? Yeah. Which one, who was he? He's the, the big guy with the mustache, the baker. Oh, okay, fuck, yeah, 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 yeah. He was good. Um, my buddy Callum Turner's in that as well. He's been blowing up. It's fucking, Ooh. it's amazing. Out of nowhere. He's a, he, was a, he was a male model as well. Fucking cunt, actually. <laughs> fuck that guy. Just Young, goes to show the beautiful. game has changed entirely. We, there's no preconceptions that are yeah, applicable. there was some nepotism involved in that as well. His mum was very connected and he, you know, he decided to go into acting. But how so, did he do? Oh, um, yeah, good. You know what I mean? Because that's really the I'm test. I'm using a high voice because like, good. He was, I think he was everybody, talented. you can't fault people for the opportunities they get. Right. One thing I realized, especially from directing, no, that's the bitterness of um, of of a struggling actor. I think that's 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 me well, allowing myself to be momentarily bitter about someone who I really want to succeed, and yeah. I'm glad they are succeeding. But at the but same, another time, part of me going, I really want to do jobs like that. There's a leg up that people get that that can be frustrating. But if you're on the other side of it and you're in the position of making certain guarantees, like when I was directing this movie, my sole goal was to make credible guarantees to the financier right. of what the result of all of this will be. And so to that end, I had to stack the deck in my favor with a DP, with a cast, with producers. Like I could only hire people on it. Which projects is this? This movie, Changeland, that I shot last year um, that we're, we're trying to figure out the distribution for okay. um, at the moment. But it was, it's really that idea of like when you're in the position of making guarantees to everybody, you cannot take risks in certain categories right and so it it comes off as nepotism but it really is the comfort of your own personal guarantee of whoever you're employing i have no issue with someone who's worked with people that they think are brilliantly talented on previous projects or they've met and they've loved their work yeah bringing them in on another project that makes absolute perfect business sense you know but it's always hard to hear that like 
somebody's dad who's Steven Spielberg or whatever, sure, like sure. meets meets their kid's friend and is like, ah, oh, this kid's hilarious, and they yeah, put that yeah. put them in the movie. You're always like, but that they they didn't even audition; they just I'm showed not up even at some. Upset about that? I'm not like I'm not. I, 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 I'm not even trying to choose my words carefully, but I'm never. The way to explain it is, I'm never jealous or envious of someone's success. I think I'm happy to see good, talented people succeed. I think yeah. it's beautiful and and good people. Like that's that makes me most happy. I'm yeah. just there's another part of me that also goes. I want to do that. Yeah, that's not. Jealous. It is always that. It's the, it's the. It's the. I want the same opportunity. I would love to do those yeah. things. That's all it yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. You probably get. The, Plus the his thing cheek, that but his cheekbones that he's also he is a cunt he's too fucking beautiful <laughs> he's too fucking beautiful and too talented well the thing that i realized is no matter how far up that chain you go yeah you're always kind of feeling that way about somebody also zoe kravitz is in that movie have you seen zoe kravitz uh i saw her in the mad max movie oh she's so fucking hot man oh she's very pretty so attractive yeah yeah which makes sense because Lenny Kravitz and what's her mom? Who's her mom? Lisa Bonet. Lisa Bonet. Yeah, like, they're both this. like proto-human. Yeah. <laughs> they're ridiculous. She's she's truly one of the most beautiful people on the planet. Yeah, it's yeah. insane. And she looks a little bit like um like uh, Amelia Clark, who plays Daenerys Targaryen. Oh, that's interesting. They have a very similar She so predates Amelia Clark for me that I never even think about because I saw Lisa Bonet obviously on Cosby and then on yeah. Different World and um in several movies. Oh, no, I'm and- talking about Zoe. Oh, Zoe. Zoe and, and Amelia Clark could oh, literally play, they could play uh, half-sisters where um, where one, the parents on, on Amelia Clark's side are both yeah. white and then maybe the mother or the father goes and, and, and has a baby with, with a black partner uh. and then Zoe Kravitz is that child. And they, so they still look like sisters. That's funny. But definitely one is, you know, a person of color and the other one is a white chick. Yeah. Yeah, where did we where did we start with that? I, to be honest, I just I was masturbating a lot yesterday. Oh yeah, I just yeah. <laughs> it's still all your head. all your tear sheets, your residual. wall of inspiration. Here, I got Amelia Clark over there. Nice painting. I got oh from yeah, Comic Con. In fact, you um, we first met right at I think uh, San Diego. San Diego. Comic-Con. Yeah, Comic Con on a balcony, uh, hanging mm. out with some people. You were there with your brother in law. Oh yeah, that um, was a wild night. That was a fun night. That was uh, a period in time where I realized. I had too many blowout events close together. Right. Like there was a period of three or four years where we went to San Diego and New York Comic Con, mm-hmm. which are, you know, July and October. And then we had several other things throughout, including big press pushes. And there was this, this not an obligation, but an opportunity for all of these people, you know, like upfronts, you're, everyone is there and, so you wind up drinking a, a lot. Never been to an upfront. Oh man! But this is where when you all that happens TV, in the like same. The pre, just for people who don't know what an upfront sure, is. Sure. So is. when when um, television was based entirely on ad sponsored content, which means that Tide or Ford buys a certain amount of upfront commitments to advertise against programming, yeah. each one of the networks put on a big display for all of those advertisers it's to... It's like a trade show of TV shows, isn't it, almost? For it the is, but it's, it's basically advanced commitments to advertising, and all of that capital is what supports the production throughout right. the year. So the networks, you know, and that's it's changing now because there's so many subscription-based uh, video-on-demand platforms, yeah. platforms that it's, that it's uh, slipping slightly, but people still want a free format, and most people don't mind watching advertisements. So there right. is still an upfronts program. But but it was that. It was it was several big events every year, all year. And when we saw each other, I was like, I am just drinking too much too often. Yeah. I'm like out late 
too much too often. Yeah. It's exhausting. I think though it was I mean it was a fun I don't remember I remember staggering out. I think uh, your 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 brother-in-law was he was a little boozy and I remember looking after him a little bit. Yes, it was a hilarious moment where my brother-in-law where we arrived at some hotel party and he, a, Paul, and he it was a guy from Assassin's Creed. He was playing Jacob Fry in Assassin's Creed. I'm glad you remember. There's very little details I recall about that, except yeah. that my brother-in-law was like, I'm going to nap on this couch for a minute. And I was like, oh shit, he's passed out for the night. Yeah. And then less than 20 minutes later, he was like, I'm up. I'm yeah. raring to go. And, and we I went, put a jacket over him and I think yeah. I brought him a glass of water. <laughs> and, then, and then he had a nap for about a good 20 to 40 minutes. Yeah, and then he was... And we all carried on hanging out. Wild for the rest of the night. It was and amazing. that was it, yeah, that he was up. Yeah. That was a crazy night. I'm pretty sure I stole a golf cart that night. You did? You stole a golf cart? That sounds like me. I, I, I staggered home. It took me ages to walk home. I didn't know where the fuck I was. I was on another planet. <laughs> it was good fun though. It was, it was, it was very good fun. Do you, do you get time to enjoy yourself anymore? Because with, with the schedule that you have, it seems like... I don't know, I, I'm feeling like I'm at this point a little bit where you you want to have fun, you want to go out, but then you go, how how's that going to impact the next day? It, you know is, what I mean? it is critical to stay professional. It is critical to be honest about your limits and to know at what point you're damaging your work. Yeah. Weekends like that where your work is panels or meeting people, mm. that becomes a really manageable responsibility even if you've stayed out all night. Sure. But then also to be sparky and have that conversation the next day and, you know, entice the audience who are there to see the, you know, the super fans who are in this, in this room. Going. Well, I don't show up in sunglasses with a hoodie on going like, yeah, turn on the lights. I'm, I'm always, I'm you always could. engaged. You could, that'd be the most rock and roll thing. Really not me. No? Yeah. My, my rock and roll comes out in other ways. Did you blow out when you were a college kid or when you were younger, younger lads? Did you ever like have- I didn't start kid? drinking until I was 28 years old. Fucking square. Unbelievable. <laughs> Why? It just not wasn't a thing you ever did. I had uh, alcoholism in my family, and so oh. it was never attractive to me. And I didn't appreciate that thing that alcohol could be consumed in moderation. Okay, <laughs> yeah, that's all, fair. It always felt like one or the other. It's the same with England. We're a yeah. nation of binge drinkers. Yeah, I started drinking heavily when I was thirteen, so I've never known a life without heavy drinking. And it's now at this age that I've decided to go. Eh, I don't yeah. think it has a place in my life. Yeah. You know, I'll have a drink under the right circumstances now, but I'm I'm making a There's point a difference between of a few glasses of wine and you know waking well, up, going to bed at eight in the morning, trying to order more coke from your fucking dealer. That's and, you know, that's like, never been me. No, I've never been so bound to substance that it precludes me from working. Like my work right, has what, always 44 been forty four now. Yeah, and you look thirty four, and I'm thirty four, <laughs> and I look forty four. That's the reason why. Well, I've also, <laughs> I've also like never gone a day without sunscreen, and I think oh, that wow, has, really? I think that has a huge effect on the state of my skin. Do you like being in California though? Have you embraced the California lifestyle, beaches, weed, that kind of thing? Is that? Um, I like both those things, but again, in moderation, under the right circumstances. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's quite, it's quite, a, it's quite a different place to be here. It's quite a different socializing in LA is very tied to work and health. Whereas New York city, or I'm assuming back in Penn state, you know, in Philadelphia, yeah. probably growing up would have been a little bit more. Well, I moved temptation. out to LA when I was 16 and pretty much grew up amongst, uh, young, young kids in family stayed back in, in, yeah. in Philly. Yeah. Okay. So well, what, for a period of time, like, I, 16 years old on your own in LA. I was just really fun. I mean, it was great. It was great. I didn't go to college because um, I was working and I sort of had my collegiate experience uh, across all the other 
teenagers and young 20s in the industry. Did you have like an, an adult kind of looking after you or was there some kind of... I mean, I had a variety of guardians, but I was responsible for getting to auditions or work myself. I was responsible for, you know, getting apartments and doing the average this stuff. This is how our lives are so different. I can't... When I was 16... I was like just drinking Red Square and fucking smoking <laughs> weed in graveyards. You know what well, I mean? But I'd also been professionally working like over 10 years. And yeah, I was no, very, I, know, I, know. I was really determined. Really determined? Yeah. And at seven, what was that first opportunity? Like, because you, like you said your parents tried to push you, not push you away, but they were uh, careful about, we're not sure if, you know, acting yeah. in the Hollywood industry is really what we want you to go into. Or even if it was possible. So how did you get that first gig? Because you must have gone to an audition. You must have done something that yeah. landed you. Um, I got to, I, I, I took uh, on-camera training classes at a school in Philadelphia. Right. That was um, run by the husband of a talent manager that represented people uh, from the East Coast in New York. Okay. And the process is a little different there. Um, actors, freelance um, and so for commercial auditions, you get called in by a particular agency. You're not represented by an agent. Right. Okay. Um, and so, you know, BBDNO is doing a, uh, a Smucker's ad and they call in a bunch of, you what's, know, what's, what's jelly jam. Oh, okay. They call like a seven, a group of seven to 10 year olds. And I'm the little redhead that can read copy really clearly and yeah. looks like a fucking five year old. And so I got a lot of stuff like that. Uh, but that was that was it. I took this I took this course. I got to audition for the manager. She hired me, sent me out on auditions, and I was lucky. I got the first like three jobs I went on. Fucking hell, man! I just can't imagine being that well, well uh, formed. That's probably the right word. Well formed at such a young age. It sounds like you like have had a wonderful mental capacity from a young age. I just. I don't know. Maybe. I was so, such a, yeah. <laughs> how? I don't understand how. Like, how are you know. so well fucking adjusted? It's I really was really confusing to me. I was determined of my purpose at a young age, which I'm grateful for. Because I had so many friends who were, who spent, you know, the time, their entire childhood into their 20s trying to figure out what it is that they would do or what they wanted to do. Could you imagine what, what other pursuits you might have followed if you'd never gone into this? Um, well, I was always interested in toys and toy production, um, but I, I never really wanted to pursue that because it is, it's a very different business. Oh, I saw you looking at some of my stuff up there. Oh, yeah. I've got, some of that's like, just these are things that were given to me. A couple of them are bought. But yeah. um, I imagine, I always imagine that you have in your house like one room. Uh, there's a guy called Lee Francis in England who uh, he did a TV series called Bo Selector, where he played lots of different caricatures. It was almost like an Ali G type thing. You know, Sasha Baron Cohen doing lots yeah. of different characters. And he's a huge comic book and geek culture fan. And he has a, ho a room in his home. And it's probably the size of my entire apartment. And he just has wall-to-wall -wall just toys and comic books in pristine condition. I imagine yeah. you've, you've got that room. Um, well, I got to a place where I decided that I wasn't going to buy anything that wasn't going to get opened. And so that really helped me with uh, consumption. Okay. Um, and, and not spending $7,000 on a, a comic book that sits in a, on a shelf and I, you never really look I, at it. I couldn't really get comfortable with those kinds of things. And I've never been the type who needs to, like, Gollum style, preserve something that other people don't have. There's a couple of... Yeah. And, and also Robot Chicken has cured a little bit of that for me in that I have held in my hand and in some cases, completely destroyed every potential grail item that I would have longed for. Yeah. And, um, you know, ma meeting and marrying 
Claire Grant, who is also a I collector herself. Actress as well, and she does a lot of voiceover on, on projects that you guys work on. Yeah, but she she's done a bunch of stuff on her own. But she she also loved toys and pop in the same way. And so we when we combined our collections, we had to a we had a lot of crossover. We're like, oh, we don't need three of this. Yeah. And, and then it was about okay, well, how going forward are we going to continue this, and what kind of displays do we? Some need? couples get a fucking tiny dog. That's a very LA thing. Whereas <laughs> you guys go, oh, we got all these toys. What do we do with these? Well, we got cats that we take care of. Right. You know, we'll we'll adult it in some way. Is there anything you uh, you you feel a little bit sad about having to have destroyed? Wait, but to months? answer your question, we don't have any large room that's dedicated solely to collectibles. We do just have in some Sex spaces dungeon, that's like it. that is that is so not us, man. We are so like basic in those in those capacities uh, people would be terribly bored no we we just have like a couple of areas where uh, these are our, our our things and we have them displayed but it's not it's not like a dedicated space do you like being here in hollywood do you think it's a place that makes you feel comfortable or is it solely for the work side of things well i've definitely made a home out of los angeles over the years like uh, i'd always thought that i would live in new york but sort of gave that gave that up because you're very east coast in the attitude i think you're very uh, in a good way Oh yeah. Like, oh yeah. So I'm I consider myself an East Coast comic, even though I'm a Londoner. I get it. Yeah. But I think London and New York, uh, those two sort of little microcosms of, of behavior. They're similar cities, just with um, similar. subtle cultural differences. Yeah, they're dirty. People are fucking rude, but also direct. I yeah. like that. But there's a there's an honesty about East Coast that I've. Uh, I, I was gonna, I was gonna say that I haven't found here in LA, which is not true. Uh, my my close circle of friends are incredibly open and vulnerable and that's very attractive you know yeah. i think a little vulnerability in this city can go a long way New- oh sorry but you you come off like a an east coast guy mm. um in terms of honest straight up i've never never felt like you've minced your words but then you're also you know you're genuine you're a genuine sweet guy which is- i've been doing interviews since i was a kid and i've seen my it's words you mate it's just a chat no 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 i mean i've i've seen my words reflected in print over and over again which has made me very aware of how carefully you need to choose your words and so i am very specific with what i say because i see how much words affect whoever you're saying them to and so i'm i'm very i am very careful about that i've always found since New York is not uh, solely dedicated to entertainment, you have a variety of interactions with a variety of type of person. Right. And they're from all over the world in different pursuits. And so you don't feel any gravity to your own work. You're just a participant. Whereas when you come to L.A., such fuss is made over the entertainment industry and the entire town is dedicated to it even the people working at starbucks are like working at starbucks for the studio it's it's just a different kind of focus so most people come out here to work in the entertainment industry and as a result that's everybody's focus that's everybody's topic of conversation i put you within even though you've done lots of projects that were um uh, uh, dramatic roles rather Hmm. than comedic roles obviously over the last few years You've certainly been a prevalent character within so many huge hit and cult comedy creations that I see you within the world of comedy. You know, you're yeah. a funny guy. Well, and, and I love stand-up too, so I, I think because of my interest in that. Well, we have, stand-ups have a different responsibility. Like, I don't carefully choose my words. I carefully deliver them based on what I truly feel. Mm. And then if someone's offended by that, I go... That's okay. You're allowed to be offended. Yeah. But that doesn't change that what I was intending was to make people laugh. And if you're offended by it, that's your personal decision. Whereas 
there's a struggle between that and the actor, which is obviously you have to don't say that on social media because God, that could lose you a fucking job with Disney down the line or something like that. Yeah. You know. Well, I'm always. Uh, yeah, isn't that funny? The way the way all of our jokes have been sort of weaponized. Oh, fuck yeah. I saw there's a quote on your um, on your Wikipedia, actually, which is you talking about religion. And Right. I, I've seen that quote. I'm never, I'm not entirely sure that I said that, but I also... It's on the internet, dude. It's 100% real. Well, I, mean, I, I think there was a point... That's how it works, Seth. There know? was a point between, <laughs> you know, uh, like 19 and 25 when I was intending to be provocative right. in interviews and i also was the most provocative thing you said well i also said i said things that weren't entirely true just to sort of fuck with the system and yeah. just sort of test the way things would be received like james um, gunn he had those he had a, he had a few jokes where he was trying to push the boundaries wasn't he and well you gotta got remember recently, but you gotta remember ridiculous. the context of that because oh. when gunn said that stuff it was in the early stages of twitter when also, there were less than ridiculous. a million people really following the platform sure. and so and the, the thing about gunn specifically is that before he took that job with disney he himself on his own twitter exposed those tweets and said Hey guys, I'm deleting these. I said this stuff. I'm owning up to You're it. I don't know convert, why I thought this was okay to say yeah. then, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I see now that and he it's did that not. Years ago, as well. Years ago. Even, yeah. No, no. Yeah. I, I, and so I in that, big post in that about case, you've got like people who are trying to you know? politicize their own uh, crowd outrage, and people are very selective now of taking quotes out of context, applying them to a particular yeah, but situation. It's like general day. anarchists and yeah. troublemakers that are like, they just want to see how powerful their messages can be weaponized. Well, I, think that's really, I think that's really dangerous, but you know, it's going to be up to each of these individual platforms to figure out how they police, you know, cause Twitter is not obligated to free speech or equal share of time the way that politicians are or the way that other free speech platforms are. Twitter is a, a business. Yeah. And so they can pick and choose exactly who they want on it and what messaging they want to support. And so allowing people the access to one another is a, is a great thing in that you get to meet and exchange ideas, but allowing people to simply attack and hurt other people, mm. that's not cool. Yeah, that's just not but cool. That's, I mean, that's that should be a basis for human interaction. If your if your yeah. sole purpose is to upset and hurt other people, unfortunately, now that does generate a huge amount of interest on the internet. People love that. Go, oh, well, fucking, you know, internet trolls. That's why someone like Alex Jones is has such a big audience because he's literally the frogs are gay and fucking, you know, yeah. Democrats. And it's it's tough. I've been watching guys like that my whole life. You know, with the the with the the lessening of laws about the way that news is reported. There used to be a, a, a fairness act in place that prevented anyone with a broadcast license or anyone who was broadcasting because the, the means of broadcasting used to be so categorically different. It prevented them from presenting false information as if it's as well, yeah. factual news. And so you've got the rise of talk radio and everything from Art Bell to... Bill O'Reilly, mm-hmm. and you know they they all hide under the the auspices of it's just entertainment, but it's presented as news. You know Orson Welles got into a ton of trouble because the War of the Worlds was presented on radio, which primarily was a format that people 
trusted and respected as a non-entertainment source in addition to the entertainment, but they thought the entertainment would at least be clearly labeled. And so War of the Worlds comes out and they talk about this alien attack and there's a fucking panic around the country because everyone thinks that we're being invaded. Yeah. And so in that, broadcasters realize that there's a responsibility to the audiences in the, in the basic way that you present information so that no one is ill-informed or driven into a panic. And then in the last 10 years, there's been a rise of people who are themselves entertained by creating a public panic. It used to be illegal to walk into a crowded theater and yell fire. And now people are trying to defend the right to yell fire as some kind of First Amendment privilege. I mean, this entire country feels like it's run by people now who uh, are trying to put everyone who lives here into a state of panic the entire time. That's that's a personal, a personal political view. I don't want to get too much into politics. There's not. Yeah, it's pretty. Really it's pretty chaotic times. You know, you you long for some calm and reasonable and well informed stewardship of your country, and not to be constantly stoked into a a fevered panic and have like factually untrue and provable information consistently presented as real yeah it's a bit frustrating to have to fact check everything that comes out of people's mouths that's uh well i think it's i think it's more frustrating more frustrating when you go through the process of fact checking and determine what the truth is and it doesn't matter like people don't people don't fucking care what's true they're just so excited to be chanting together yeah yeah go to go to church chant chant there instead you don't need to yeah. Go to a political rally and fight strangers in public. Like, it just doesn't need to be this. It's a desire to belong. I think it's like a desire to belong to a subset, you know, whether it's, whether it's you know, an actor wanting to hang out with uh, other creatives, whether it's, you know, someone who's angry about a situation in their local hometown going, yeah. I need to find other angry people who feel the same way I do. We well, just want to belong with each other. Human That's nature what, you know. is that we need to commune and we need to, like, focus our, our, our hate or our anger, our animosity into a sort. That's why, um, you know, in 1984... There's the the five minutes hate mm-hmm. where everyone takes a, a beat out of their work day, looks at the enemy, the enemy, this face of the bad guy, and yeah. they all scream all the obscenities they can, and they get all that out, and then they go back to work. Yeah. And the the you know the government in that book had that's created what, that's what fucking Twitter and Facebook is for people now to some extent. Sort of whether that's Osama bin Laden or or you know Harvey Weinstein, it's like mm. we we have these these demons. I don't know. I'm not trying to like. Like Harvey Weinstein did some seriously ill shit, and when you, when you actually like uncover the, the depths of the illness of it, you're like, how did anybody let this happen? Man, fear, fear of not succeeding. I think when mm-hmm. power, power is a very interesting thing. You've got, I mean, look, you've got quite a lot of power within, um, your industry. No, 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 you're far in your brow, but I think you've you've reached a point now in your career where you're making lots of different projects. You're the face or the voice of some huge successful things. Is there something you would like to do post or no, not post, alongside creativity? Because I can imagine you still at ninety years old making movies, you know, making series, so. shooting, directing, producing. Um what other aspirations do you have outside of your creative I just try to work hard and be nice to people. Like ah, that is. That's such a fucking, that's such a, is there is there is there a thing you you know do, is there a thing you'd love to fucking do? Some people want to go and like open up a winery in the south of France. Some people want to build a, a well for kids in Malawi. Some people want to do a. Is there is there a goal a thing that you went fuck? You know what? When I have the a little bit more time 
and I have the 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 financial and um, the financial means and also the time available to me. I would like to learn to fly fixed wings and rotary. Like I'm I'm definitely interested in that, but you know that's like a hundred hours of. Uh, uh, in-flight experience so to you get. You want to fly out with Tom Cruise and fucking John Travolta. You want to have a little race, the three of you. I'm definitely not interested in jets, but I got to no, make... You buy planes, don't they? And propellers yeah. and stuff. Those yeah. Guys. yeah. I got to make a movie where I played a pilot and I wound up getting a lot of experience in that. I've been in a ton of helicopters and I just really enjoy that. Um, but I haven't been able to dedicate to it. It's something very uh, identifiable with people who love superhero culture love the 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 idea of you being able to fly that's like a superhero trait it's more like one step closer to teleportation it's like avoiding driving or you know commercial travel to be able to start at point a and end in point b i also like the idea of uh if if God forbid, I mean, touch wood, I hope it doesn't happen, especially not in our lifetime uh, or anyone's lifetime. But it, when the uh, the apocalypse comes, quite nice to be able to go, hey, listen, you grab your lady and a couple of cats and you yeah. throw them on the back, maybe a couple of toys. First episode of Walking Dead, you know, uh, Andy Lincoln walks out of that hospital and there's that helicopter there. And all I thought was, man, I'm, you know, if that was me, I'd, I'd get us the I'd fuck out of here. in that fucking helicopter, <laughs> exactly. I'd at least get us off the ground. Um, so what's coming up for you? What are the uh, the projects you got going on? You obviously shot a movie last year. You said yeah, you were to- yeah. We got to shoot a movie um, that I I wrote and directed, which was uh, a lot of um, new experiences in ways that I didn't expect them to be so new. Um, what kind of new experiences? Well, I'd never directed a long form feature before, so I hadn't edited a uh, ninety minute program, especially right. something that I was acting in, and so I learned a lot about things that I do as an actor or <laughs> things that. You you get I was I asked a ton of questions and and I've done like over forty movies so I've like watched everybody go through this process and I I thought I was I I still maintain I was one of the most well prepared first time directors that you could get even still I was learning things every day. Do you so have to keep fun. up a little bit because the role of the the director you know the role of the uh, the author the, the the commander the dictatorial nature of that role in itself. You have to. I know it's a it's a it's a collaborative process, yeah. but you have to at least appear the whole time to be. I know what we're doing. I know what's coming out. I know what's going on. You do absolutely have to have enough creative certainty that you can provide authority, because in most cases, all of the the experts, you really only want to give them the confidence to do their best work. Anybody that you've hired, you're like, I need you to do what you're doing, even if what you're doing is just sweeping this cable out of the way like I need you to do that well or this whole thing falls apart so the thing that that I learned making um, 10 seasons of Robot Chicken is how critical the decisiveness in the moment needs to be and the point that I make was to be well prepared um, so that we'd thought through everything that was going to happen I had really great producers with a ton of forethought and we spent a tremendous amount of time planning the thing so that when stuff goes wrong or stuff goes different, you're able to roll with it. We're flexible enough to make a decision. And I maintained that I wanted the best idea, even if it wasn't my idea. Okay. So I had the humility to say, what do you think, guys? What do we do here? And then I would be the one who says, we're doing this. But you also said it in a way that said, I'm going to make the final decision. There's, yeah. a, there's, there's, a, there's a level, I think. There's a level of... Going- well, you know, as an actor, you just want to know that your director knows what the fuck they're yeah, talking yeah. about. You just want to know when you put yourself out there, when you're literally giving everything you've got and they're filming it, 
that you can trust them to get it right, that you can trust them in editorial not to yeah. make you look stupid. You know what I mean? You're, 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 you're like, I'm a vessel for your vision, so you want to know that their vision is sound or it's, that they have a, a clear vision. It's a very different experience, vision. though, to be... If, you're, if your role is director, yeah. that's a very different thing to being director and also one of the stars of the project. Yeah. Like, how do you... Yeah. I, I, that, me getting my head around that seems like it would be the hardest part, taking yourself out and also putting yourself... I don't know what your process is in terms of um, acting a yeah. certain role, but I assume you like to get lost in the character yeah. and... Well, I definitely realized that in a way I didn't expect to. I realized how much I do between cut and action as an actor and how much I did not give myself the space to do that because I was moving so quickly and so conscious as a producer of what we had to accomplish at what pace. Um, and then as a director, what I needed from a particular moment. So I didn't give myself the same leeway to discover. I really only hit the beats that I'd already written as right. I'd expected them. Um, is it a process of like, you know, stopping for a moment, looking at that monitor, watching it back, saying, okay, well, this I didn't is watch playback unless it was a critical visual thing. I just, I had people on set that I felt I could trust with respect to my performance that if they said we got it, then I would just... And if you've got a great DP as well, then... Yeah, my DP was awesome. Awesome, man. The movie's beautiful. Like every frame of it is fucking gorgeous. What's the uh, what's the movie about? Can you give us a little bit? Yeah, it's that? a really simple movie. I had uh, taken a trip to Thailand with one of my buddies and we had such an incredible experience. It was just very funny. Everything that happened is two dudes on a trip to a place that's primarily a honeymoon place. So everyone just assumed, it was in 2009. Everybody just assumed, you Get know. Couple. Yeah. Yeah, so everywhere we went, they were like flowers on the bed and like really romantic scenes for us on the beach. And so we're like, this is too silly. Um, Never attempted. You didn't have a little Jeff Leach, Zac Efron moment where you thought, you know what? Fuck it. We've got the room. Well, I had already met Claire at that point, And so I was already like really into her. I'm, I'm not saying cheat on her. I'm just saying lotus flowers on the bed. The two of you could just like lay on the bed opposite each other, stare into each other's eyes. We definitely had a wonderful best friend's ex vacation experience. But, <laughs> but that was my, my whole point was yeah. everything that was happening, the visuals of it, the, yeah. the people that we were meeting, the tours that we were taking, which is all very conventional like it's it's what everybody does when they hit those regions they take this boat tour they go see this island they stand in this place they do whatever pose i was like something about this is incredibly cinematic how much of the moments and the and the um and the dialogue was you know at least obviously it's going to be paraphrased to some extent yeah. but how much of it was transcribed from your actual experience none of the dialogue okay none of the emotional detail all of that's completely invented okay what what i did was i cataloged all the set pieces all of these locations. I basically location scouted the movie on my vacation. Right. And then, you know. Even working when you're on a fucking holiday, mate. You I wasn't to... really working. I was inspired. I was, I, I was legitimately inspired. Like, what a slice of life this is and what an interesting film this would make. And so that's, that's what I did. I set out. It took me years to write the movie. I just kept getting distracted. Um, I did other whole projects. I, like, wrote entire other stuff, produced entire stuff. And they kept coming back to this idea. And it really happened after I did... Uh, the show Dads for Fox. I got to work with an actress uh, called Brenda Song, and she's. Does she play the friend in the in the movie? Uh, no, Breckin Meyer plays the my buddy. It only okay, works so if it's it, two guys. Okay, it is two guys. Uh, but I got Brenda, and I also got Claire to play these uh, women that run a boat tour, and it, that all came from me and my buddy Dan being on this boat tour, and like the girl that ran our boat tour was hilarious, and she yeah. was really well practiced and had this whole thing and everybody on the boat was like i'll never forget this girl i was like yeah. this is a fucking character in this movie and when i met brenda i was like i should really get back to that project you'd be perfect for this part and she gave me a little 
bit of inspiration to write that character in a very specific way. And it like solved a problem for me thematically. And so I just wrote, I got down to it uh, when, when we wrapped that show, just getting that script written and then working to get it financed. Did you, um, I'm assuming there's a romance story between the two guys, maybe the two ladies. Well, no, no. So the plot something. of the movie, cause I needed a plot cause no one's going to go see a movie about an actor on vacation with his producer buddy, like taking a trip to Thailand. And so I, I came up with this idea of a guy because the whole thing takes place over 48 hours. Um, I, I, so I came up with this idea of a guy who prepaid a second honeymoon for a failing marriage. Right. And on the eve of surprising her with this grand gesture, he discovers she's been having a year-long affair. Right. And so instead of confronting her, because he's kind of a coward in the moment, so in shock, he collects his old best friend, who you come to discover he's a little estranged from, and they go on this romantic honeymoon trip to try and figure out what he should do. Right, okay. Yeah. I think if there's ever um, working with someone you're actually intimately involved with as well, you know, being married to one of your co-stars. Yeah. Uh, if you ever have any scenes together where you're, you are romantic, they always say that you can tell when people are actually together because the romance, it looks less romantic than if they're not. Does that make sense? You know, Maybe. the old adage is if two actors are fucking each other off screen, mm. then on screen, the romance looks less romantic. But mm. then if they're not fucking, then the romance scenes look really... Well, uh, as somebody who's done a bunch of romantic scenes, I am usually fairly technical with respect to what position we're in and making sure that the girl is okay. Because it's like an incredibly uncomfortable have situation. Have you ever had one of those little bags over oh, yeah. cock and balls? Yeah, yeah, I had one of those yeah. once in a movie. It's a very weird situation. I had a but- dildo put in my ass. I mean, didn't, <laughs> didn't, she didn't actually do it, obviously. That wasn't, I didn't go that level of method. But That's funny. But I, uh, those little cock pockets, like a yeah. little... Well, you sack. feel very stupid. The thing that um, you and McGregor said something really smart, which is that brain. when you're so the free, naked man. person on the set, you'll be more comfortable than everybody else around you. And so anytime that I've had to be like naked or close to it, I, I understand that everyone else is incredibly uncomfortable and I love to exploit that. But in this movie, I thought it was the smartest thing that I could do. I, I wrote this part for Claire and I wrote this part for Brenda. And so they both played those characters and I didn't have any romantic stuff with Claire. I paired her up with Brecken Meyer and the, the thing is, I've known Brecken over 20 years. We're very close. And he and Claire are very close. So I was like, this is going to work. You guys are going to have incredible chemistry on, on screen. Yeah. And all of us think about those things in the same way. So Claire and I have known each other for you know 10 years at this point. And before we were romantic, we had a lot of conversations about how it feels to be on set in a love scene. Yeah. And where our own personal POV is on that. And you know, neither of us... It, it, it's very easy to when you feel those emotions palpably as your character, it can get very confusing. And so in this instance, I didn't feel any fear of that because I was like, well, these are people who I know actually uh, love and respect and trust each other. Neither one of them is going to take this over the line. Sure, of course. So in some cases, I would even fuck with them. Like they had to kiss at one point. It was the first time they kissed. And I just didn't call cut. I just let it roll. <laughs> nice. And I saw them both get like really weirded DVD out by it. extras. There yeah. It was funny. And it's not like actually intimate, but I'm like, hey, you guys are satisfying something for this audience in this moment that has to look real. So don't fucking hold back and don't make it weird. Like we'll call cut and we'll all go on with the rest of our lives. But if people doubt for a second that this kiss is anything less than the culmination of all of the scenes that they've seen prior to this, we're failing. So give me another take. (laughs) Kiss again. Do it. 
Um, do you uh, do you have to draw any kind of creative line, um, you and Claire, in terms of because you're obviously life partners, you know, and you will su- support each other through every every facet of your life, whether it's personal or work. Yeah. But also because you're both in the same industry and in the same world, do you ever uh, did you ever have to have a conversation where you go, you know what, we draw the line at talking about work at this point, or do you use each other constantly as a sounding board creatively? I guess a little bit of both. Right? We have we have plenty of instances where we don't talk about work but it's not like because oh, i'm scared I of dating in space that's the you know it's, i think like that's um you know it, it's just gotta be the you just you, you gotta be a right match there's there's no um categories that you can accurately avoid wholesale you know there's this is why i brought you here seth this is the rest of this podcast was just, just about lead up to me just trying to get a bit of yeah. dating advice man how i wouldn't i wouldn't how exclude- you make it work seth and how can i make it work for me? well the truth is Find somebody that you like to hang out with. Find somebody who you share. My mate Terry. We work a lot out of together. Opinions we get really right, well. Yeah. Right. But also somebody that you have some romantic or sexual chemistry yeah, I mean, with. He's beautiful, but I think I'm that's not critical. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> I mean, maybe... You're answering your own questions, though. Like, this is not, you may not even what do you're my advice. Just, you need to hook this Zach Efron moment up. <laughs> and that's it. Do is that you... what it's going to come down to? Yeah. I don't know if Zach is your guy. Really? Yeah, I think he's into girls primarily. I'm, we don't have to do anything. We can right. just be like life partners, man. Platonic life partners. That is funny. I worked with like a producer hands, at one out. point and I was like, man, I'm not into guys, but I could see being married to this guy. Who? Just to, uh, this uh, producer, Donald DeLine, who's like a fucking phenomenal producer. But just the way he is as a person, I was yeah. like, I just want Sundays reading the paper and drinking coffee with you, That's my buddy Seth in man. New York. He's, a, he's, a, he's a, um, a social worker with kids in the Bronx. The guy's, yeah. a, And he's a giant Viking, big beard, long hair, big, warm, cuddly, sweet guy. He's, yeah. from, he's from Portland, Oregon originally. His family's very like just a kind soul. And I looked at him every time I'm with him. I think to myself, I could be with you. Like we, n- yeah. we'd never fuck. We shot two movies together on location, so we spent months together, like in all these trenches. And it really, uh, it I was like, you, fuses you together. Well, it? and also we like hung out on Sundays, and I was like, see, this is this is what life should be. But that was that was uh, years before I Did met my wife. Did you ever cry together? Uh, no, but we definitely like had conversations about incredibly real stuff. You yeah. know, should we shared a lot of good stuff. That guy's amazing. One of the best producers I've ever worked with. Maybe introduce me to him. He sounds great, man. Mm-hmm. Fuck it. I mean, I've tried 34 years as a heterosexual man and uh, <laughs> I'm still single. Yeah. Um, dudes, uh, I mean, you're a wonderful man and thank you very much for coming and talking to us. Oh well, yeah, that's all we got. All right. Oh no, we can keep talking. I just assumed you'd have to wrap up. Probably, I've got loads more I'd like to talk to you some about. Let's, uh, we're an hour in. I'm, I'm aware of two things. One, I don't want to fuck your throat up. That's why I was being very careful. I bet we could go another 15 minutes. Oh, all right. right. Yeah. All right, let's do it. No pressure. Well, I, I just mentioned that your Speed throat. Round. You've, been like, you've been pushing yourself to the boundary, man. I yeah. feel like, um, I don't know, for, for there, there's got to be a, a, a different way for every single actor to allow themselves some freedom. You don't really drink. You don't party. You. I mean, I drink on occasion, yeah. But I'm, I'm saying yeah, I don't, that's not I don't your escapism. Party. Yeah, for, for, for me, that was always my escapism, which is why mm. it's now a thing that I just like, well, I don't really think that has a place in my life. Mm. Um, what's, your, what's your last remaining fucking escapism from work? Because it sounds like you that's all you seem to do. Well, I mean, I'm, a, I'm kind of a homebody, you know. Claire and I watch a lot of TV. We'll watch movies. I just went out. We had a double date with friends of ours and went to see a movie last night. So I, I, I definitely do stuff. I still love going to see live music. Sometimes I don't have the patience for 
that big of a crowd. Like you were in a band when you were a teenager. Were you in a band? Um, I was in a band, but I'm not musically talented. So I was the singer songwriter. What was the name of the band? Uh, we were called Belly Room after the Comedy Store. Yeah, I'm performing there tonight. I'm oh, you the, are? Yeah, I'm in the Belly Room tonight. That place, man. I really love the Comedy Store. That was the first. I, I was when I first came. I guess not when I was when I was like 14 years old. I stayed at the Mondrian. Did you ever fuck with stand up at all? Yeah, yeah. This this was the year I got to. I was on the last two episodes of The Facts of Life. Okay. And I was staying directly across from the, the world famous comedy store. And I was like, I can't believe it's a fucking comedy store. And so I like finagled my way in there. And I met Mitzi Shore. Okay. And I was too young. Rest in peace, Mitzi. Yeah. 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 But she was the boss, man. Like I I went in there and I was too young to be in the place, but she approved me going on open mic night. That's and so dope. the way that I did it, you know how they have that door that goes right to the fucking stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had to stay outside until it was my set, and then I came up oh, and I did the my back five. Oh, the belly room, yeah. I literally up the stairwell. Yeah. Wow. So I came, I came in and I did my five, and I did that like three weeks in a row while I was making the show. How did it feel? It was great, but I realized but you clearly didn't it didn't infect you with a bug enough that you decided you know I what was, this is it I need to I, do some stand up. I realized because of all the comedians that I loved. Um, Richard well, Pryor, I saw it again. This is yeah. just like by digging around a little bit yeah. for old interviews. Well, I loved like Kinnison and, um, you know, I like, but I liked guys like Lenny Bruce too. Lenny, like, Bruce, I liked, right. Lenny Bruce redefined what fucking stand-up was. He yeah. literally took it from kind of vaudeville storytelling into I'm going to push every single boundary. That, that Topical, personal, gave, emotional. Any comedian, stand-up comedian working today who doesn't know who Lenny Bruce is mm. needs to know who he is. They're and doing also, themselves a disservice. Well, also, he's the only reason we're allowed to do what we do. Yeah. It's well, it was all that. I really... Story, you know? He spends all of his money fighting. He was arrested so many times and he literally <laughs> spent all of his money fighting uh, various court cases against him yeah. because he wanted to talk about homosexuality and about people of color yeah. being you know downtrodden in this country and about yeah. the government and... He really um, pr- promoted significant cultural changes. It was insane. Yeah. If it weren't for guys like that, we wouldn't live in a world like this. Have you have you befriended any stand-ups that you were oh, yeah. previously a fan of? Yeah, I befriended tons of stand-ups. Like, ton of, ton of comedians in my life, just like, you know. Who? Like, who's, who's your favorite that you that you went? Because there's... there's, there's... Um, you know, Bob Saget and I have had a resurgence of our love affair. I've known him for a really long time, and then we... we we ran into each other at a um um the night the night that Robin Williams died. We were all at a memorial at the comedy store, and it was it was just a I just saw him and he was sitting by himself. I'm like, I oh, sit with us instead. And then I was like, Are oh, you gonna give me your number? We're gonna adopt each other tonight. Tonight we're adopting each other. Yeah, yeah. Bob's the best. Um, but but I've had occasion to meet some of my. I got to meet Kinnison on that trip. Um, Kinnison's a weird one for me because he was again. It, there's no one like Sam Kinison. Yeah. You know, he was such a unique character. It's that time too, that time. He was so provocative and of different course. from he any was standards. Also super fucking high on coke all the time as well, which, you know, adds yeah. a adds a, a different energy. In well again, and you and you, and you talk about the lessons that I got peripherally, I will never forget when Sam was supposed to be on Joan Rivers show and he cancelled on her and she took a fucking camera crew to his hotel room and confronted him at the door about being too high to show up for his TV appearance. And that really... This was on her me. TV show? On her TV show. She showed up with a camera to his hotel room, confronted him. And that was, the, that was the moment for Sam where he couldn't hide from how addicted to drugs he was. And he started getting clean in that moment. It's crazy. And then obviously that didn't work out, unfortunately. Well, when he died, he died of a heart attack on the but road. And it wasn't even... He was heavily influenced by the way he treated his body. By the way he treated his body. But I think, I think in that moment he had gotten sober. I may be telling that wrong. but This is like Greg Giraudo. Greg Giraudo, I think, is what would have been 
should have been one of the most successful comedians of all time. Yeah. He's got an album called Midlife Vices that um, if you listen to it today, he's making jokes about Bush in it and stuff like that, but yeah. it's so applicable to everything that's happening right now. That motherfucker was the funniest guy mm. at all the rows on stage. Ah, oh, It's hard. It's hard him, all, these, all these like flames that burn really bright and leave you with something that's both a, a creative... Um, like a new evolution of creativity coupled with a uh, a stern warning about sure. how how you can die fast. Sure. Yeah, I hit, well, that's like going past 27 for me. Mm. Once I started working on TV and then hit going past it, I was like, well if I'm not going to I'm not I'm not successful enough to die at 27 now. Right. Plus I didn't die at 27. So now I guess I just have to probably not do coke anymore. Stick it out. Yeah, I guess you I should just, just like try run and get this longevity through. of career. You know, m- moderation in any form is going to be the key to longevity. However, for a storyteller, mm-hmm. which stand up predominantly, that's what all we're doing is storytelling. The best stand ups, you know, you love your prize, you love your kinesis. The yeah. stories, it's that personal raw stories. For sure. If you're a storyteller, no good story starts with, I was having a moderate night. Well, you know, <laughs> like- but then you look at a guy like Seinfeld yeah. who doesn't even swear on stage. Sure, sure. And he is expert expert at that i've seen him live several times like i saw him young and then i've seen him a couple times since the show uh since his uh his network show and he's a master of that and then you see something like um comedian the movie where he talks about working a set and i had just never gotten such an interior perspective of a comedian's process and i was really struck by that it was it was exactly that that when i was 14 i knew i wasn't you know, the way I had certainty about being an actor, doing those sets that I did, I was really clear that I was not a stand-up. I could do it, but not... No, no I, was, I was never going no to do it... No one's a stand-up. People have, have natural talent just in the same way they do for, you know, a propensity for, for natural acting ability. Yeah. But no one is a stand-up. The best stand up, no, no, the best storytellers, the best stand ups in the world are not stand up comedians. It's the old dude at the end of the bar in that fucking shitty dive bar over in Greenwich Village, and you sit there and he's like, hey, what's going on, buddy? And, blah, blah, and just starts going to stories. But if you put him on a stage with a microphone in front of an audience, he'd falter, he'd close up, he'd clam up. I think it's, you can have a natural ability for something, but to become a stand up, just like becoming an actor you have yeah. to train you have to practice for you sure. have to eat shit a thousand sure. times well it was kind of the same as me trying to pick up guitar you know i took like three months of lessons and i was like ah, oh, this is gonna take a completely different type of dedication than yeah. i'm willing to apply to it but i mean i saw like um i think it was john mulaney's special and i'm like ah, oh, this guy's this guy's great he just does the thing and it's his own style it's his own performance um, and I was really clear that I wasn't that. Or or more to say, I was very clear. Did you not have the, maybe it was just more important that you didn't have the natural, you weren't drawn to it as this is what I have to do. Yes, I, I wanted it enough to get on stage several times. And I was, um, I was dedicated enough to write new material yeah. every time I went up. Do you remember what you talked about? I did. Well, I, you know, it's great being 14. And going on stage in a place like that, yeah. I looked like I was 10 or 12, yeah. and I was talking about very basic stuff. I was talking about the difference between Philadelphia and Los Angeles. Okay. I was talking about being under my mother's roof. I was talking about basic observations of a kid. 
Yeah. You know, the way that I saw stuff that adults did that they think is this, that actually is just this. Yeah. And it was very, very silly. You and I talk about basic like shit. Harry Potter, because, you know, old Daniel Radcliffe, didn't he lose his virginity at the age of 14 to a... No, this is apparently what it is. He lost his virginity at the age of, like, 13, 14 on a Harry Potter set to, like, a, a makeup girl or a costume girl or something hmm. like that. You didn't have any crazy stories like that to... I mean, I did, but they're not public. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Put that on fucking stage. See, that's what yeah. I would want to hear a 14-year-old kids. I'll save it for my memoir. Yeah, no, I've been really, I've been really great at, at maintaining a private life. Yeah. And yeah. The, the upside is that because I'm not like tall and handsome and, and because my wife is not um, so solicitous of, you're, of celebrity you're a in the same way. Guy and you're also oh, oh, a, de- a decade younger looking than you are, which all is I mean is, a All I mean is this. The, the, the paparazzi tend to follow a particular archetype and I've never okay. fit into that. Like you don't see the paparazzi chasing down Jack Black or Ben Stiller. Like they just, they're not, they're Having not said even- that, Hugh Jackman, who I think, oh, there you go. There's a guy I yeah. super fucking gay for. I, I would drop to my knees for yeah, Hugh Jackman. Yeah, Hugh Jackman's pretty awesome. Ooh. Yeah. But he, um, he keeps his private life very private. I think you can yeah. you can either court that behavior and court that kind of lifestyle, mm-hmm. or you're hopefully mature enough. Your life's good enough. Well, you know, you're, you're you're comfortable enough in yourself to go. I don't want to. Well, it's also as an actor, you Michael really want to always. You, you always want to be able to convince the audience that you're a different character, mm. and if they become too familiar with you as a personality, then they'll they won't be able to see you as this variety of things. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. You get typecast as the the bad boy who's out rolling out of a bar at six in the morning. People just, uh, you, you know, I was so um, uh, vocal about um, nerd things that people only start to see you as connected to that genre. Which means you can have those crazy fucking, you know, anal felching sex parties without anyone ever <laughs> digging into it. <laughs> Again, that is so not my thing. Absolutely not. Yeah. Definitely didn't talk about that before the podcast started recording. 100%. <laughs> Um, all right, we're at 15 now. All right. I've really enjoyed talking to you, man. Me too, man. I feel like Good this is, well, first of all, this is 100% the longest conversation we've ever had with That each can't other. be true. I felt like we, every time we run <laughs> into each other, we wind up chatting. That's yeah, why. San Diego Comic Con, the first time, we had a good chat that time. And that was our first, you know, when we swapped numbers and said, hey, let's talk about some point. I, you know, and I don't, I don't mean this as any, um, uh, uh, this is only a fact. It is, I meet so many people every day that it's difficult for me to remember people. And oh, no, no one remembers we'd had enough parents of parents don't even know who the fuck I am. Well, I mean, is that we'd had enough of a connection at the onset that I was like, oh yeah, Jeff Leach, I remember you. Thanks, man. I appreciate yeah. it. I'm glad <laughs> I may have had an impact. Um, and I also, but I've enjoyed this because even people that I hang out with regularly, uh, comics that I've you know spent a lot of time with, I find this to be a really nice in-depth way to get to know uh, just a more full blooded picture of yeah. who they are and they're funny and what they want and it's really nice it's really nice so I've really enjoyed this thank you ma'am my pleasure um, so the film that's going to be coming out next year I'm assuming I hope so yeah we I'd love, like up. March or uh, April would probably be my best bet but it's but called, honestly it's called Changeland okay um, but it's you know it's um, it's it's not it's not designed to be a, a, a massive thing it's really not that kind of film well, that's just as well because we got about fourteen thousand listeners worldwide <laughs> it's not a massive i'm not i'm not i'm not you know i'm not joe rogan but yeah i know the people who are, who are watching this will be very interested to know what's going on so cha- uh, that's going to be coming out 
maybe March, April next That's year. That's my hopefully. goal. Yeah, we're we're meeting with uh, distributors these days, trying okay. to figure out exactly what the best the best play for it is. And what about on the animation side, etc.? What other projects we got? We're currently making the tenth season of Robot Chicken. We just finished the uh, was it the third the third season of Super Mansion. We're starting a new show for Hulu that probably won't be out until mid next year called Crossing Swords. Nice. Yeah. Like studio, the studio is really busy, which is which is a lot of fun. But I'm again, I'm a partner in it, so I don't have to be. Um, in, in fact, it's not productive for me to be full time on every project. I'm 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 uh, able to be surgical where I'm most effective. Good. Well, I'm glad that you're getting to work on lots of different things because it's nice to see you in so many different things. Thanks, man. Um, I wish you more success. Right on your life and uh, yeah. Guys, thank you so much for joining us today. Savages, I'll see you next time. Uh, make sure to hit subscribe, like, etc. Check out the merch as well. I'll put a link below. There you go. Look, Savage Snowflake t-shirts. Buy one. <laughs> uh, support this. And thank you once again, Mr. Seth Green. Right on, buddy. Take care, brother.